0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Technical Area, your weekly Football Manager podcast brought to you by me, your host Gaffer Grama, once again. The world is a weird place, I suppose we can say. As we trudge through this global pandemic, some horrible events have now taken away the news that Should be providing optimism across the world that as a light begins to appear at the end of this COVID 19 tunnel, despite the hardship, suffering, and sacrifice made by so many, there is and there should be a light beginning to appear at the end of the tunnel. Now, unbeknownst to what would happen on Tuesday as blackout. Tuesday on social media I had a blog post scheduled and blog post was released I promoted the blog post on other forms of social media well in terms of using the Gaffer Graymo account and then over on the football manager slack and it was only after I'd done all this I became aware of this blackout Tuesday movement as something I've tried to do over the past couple of weeks is reduce my I suppose social media time to try and cut back try and you know move away from spending as much time as I have done over the past couple of weeks trying to deal with the lockdown when I became aware of this blackout tuesday um movement this blackout tuesday um protests on social media whichever you'd like to call it i decided not to run a technical area poll for this episode as i normally would do on a tuesday and although i did not put a tweet or post up a black square or black box on any form of social media i decided to use this you know silence and use my silence and in respect and in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. A movement which I as Graham, the person, Gaffer Gramo, the online persona, and the technical area, this kind of little adventure I have going here. Through all forms of this I fully stand behind and support this movement. Whether you do, whether you don't, everything, you know, that I I feel it's not my place to tell you what you should and should not do. But I just want to tell you that's my stance. This is where I believe. This is where I come from. If only we could all view the world. In terms of the attributes people bring to it. Rather than the appearance of some blocky new gen. uh, Created model that we can often see and complain about in Football Manager. We can all celebrate the attributes. What makes every person unique. What makes every person exceptional. And hopefully, you know, we can move forward and live in a world where we're all celebrated for the attributes, the qualities, the strengths that we bring. In Football Manager 20, I've had an explosive, I suppose, week in terms of what's happened. I won't go into too much detail in regards to save because 30 minutes after this podcast drops, that's 8am on Friday, June 5th, 2020, so half at half past eight and thirty minutes time, if you're listening to this, you know, straight off, fresh off the, the press, fresh off the download, you'll see that, you know, things have changed in my Football manager save. I have a new experience in playing. I, after limping through most of lockdown with a, a laptop that, you know, didn't seem to, to want to. Put in the hard yards well they didn't seem capable of doing it either. Um, I took the plunge and got a new laptop, and it has changed my FM world. So much detail on the screen. There's, I, I, there's you know, I, I've never experienced football management the way I have as comprehensively. And being able to play in 3D as well has been great excitement, and it's really renewed, and reinvigorated, and refreshed my love of the game. I didn't realise just how much I had been missing out on. Now, I do miss the dots, I do love those little 2D dots. But in terms of the actual interface and the gameplay, I'm using the Renzi skin and all, something I hadn't been able to download before. I am loving it. But, Joe, you know, just to give you the quick overview of how things went down, we had a long Bank Holiday weekend there in Ireland last weekend, and that kind of gave me plenty of time to really sink my teeth into. The new laptop and sink my teeth into the save. Uh, season 3, it's no surprise. You probably, you might have seen me tweet it out there at the weekend. It ended with a trophy. We got a trophy with ran The Coupe de France. 2022 champions. And it was a 2-0 win over Ream in the final. Two unlikely goal scorers. But nonetheless, I'm not complaining. Uh, you'll get the full story of the season, of course, on the blog. So if you want to go and check that out afterwards, you'll find a link to... Uh, you'll find a link to my site down below the technical area. dot wordpress. dot com, and you'll be able to find your way to uh, the blog post there, just under the FM twenty tab. But now, as season four of in-game play continues, I'm going to try and do something a little bit different with the save and how I play the game. And it's going to be very similar to what I'm going to be talking about here. It might be the Moneyball approach that we're talking about in this episode. But it might be just like adopting that statistic based model. So as we finish off this week with the three part mini series. That I entitled The Rise of the New Club. Our focus as I've just said is on Moneyball and analytics. And using these methods to give teams, give ourselves. You know, an edge that, you know, has newly arrived and newly developed in the world of football. If you've missed parts one and two, or you, you know, you want to go back and listen to them again. This three-part mini series was on the rise of the new club focused on. Clubs using affiliates and networking links, and that was part one. In part two, clubs using B-teams, reserve teams, young teams, second teams, whatever it is. To, you know, develop new talents for the squads in new ways. And finally, this week, Moneyball and analytics. There may be some repetition of what I spoke about over the past two weeks in terms of using networking and affiliates and using B-teams and reserves. And there will be a little bit of crossover what we spoke about with Brentford last week. And that's something I did say last week. There will be a little bit of crossover. So if you haven't heard me talking about Brentford, feel free to listen back as well as we try and you know build up this full picture of how we can change football using these new, uh, new ventures, these new ways, clubs are always trying to find. But I suppose there's no better place to start, no better place to begin talking about money, well, and analytics than, of course, that famous character, Billy Bean, and Billy Bean and the Oakland A's—they changed sports forever. After opening his mind at opening himself to new possibilities with a floundering and I suppose underresourced franchise in the uh, M- MLB Billy Bean and his analytics team they established criteria in which they could measure each position in baseball, every action, every role and then quantifying the events that occurred in a game and That would give them an insight through their algorithm through their methodology they were able to find true value of players and then through through this method of identifying true value or finding undervalued assets across uh, baseball they were able to piece them together to bring data-driven success to the organization an approach which traditional methods of coaching traditional methods of recruiting May not have been able to, and an approach which has stemmed right across the world of sports, not just baseball, as we see, every team, every club, every organization try and find those minute details that the eye may miss out on, establish where they're coming from and address them, and hopefully give themselves an edge in becoming a successful side now as always you'll find the sources below for where i found all of my information that i share so kind of as always what i'm going to be sharing with you is a mix of my own thoughts and information i have um, you know gathered from the list of websites and podcasts below so again i would the podcast that i'm kind of will be down below is a uh, flying coach with steve Ker- Pete Carroll. Not sure if you were aware, Steve Kerr is the head coach of the Golden State Warriors basketball, uh, basketball team, and Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. Both are friends, both are, you know, championship winning coaches, both great stories to tell. So if you are looking for another podcast, if you have an interest in American sports, I would highly recommend it. I don't know if it's going to last after quarantine, after COVID, but, you know, the information that's there, certainly till till this point now, is certainly worth listening to. But getting back to Moneyball and analytics and football manager, the underdogs will rise by using their brains. It's how David beat Goliath. And in football, it is no different. If the underdogs can identify the inefficiencies in football and find ways to exploit them, they will give themselves an edge that could take them to unprecedented levels of success, ways in which they had not been capable of doing before. However, as the rise data and analytics rises and the role of these in football becomes increasing, even in casual conversations, there is a significant issue and a significant challenge that exists in football. While there is the stop-start nature of baseball, football is a much more fluid game. Events take place in many shapes, in many ways, in many different forms. So quantifying these events that take place on a pitch is much more challenging for anyone. Trying to gather this information. And for all of us who are trying to gather this information and use it, we must embrace data analytics with an openness to making mistakes. And in making mistakes, it'll allow us to better learn and refine our approach and find ways in which we can make it work for us. Because Translating Billy Bain's moneyball approach to football has been a torturous task. Billy Bain himself has gotten involved in football. He has had links with Barnsley, with AZ Alkmaar, and many other clubs across the world have spoken to Bain about his moneyball approach. But translating it has been the challenge. And it's a challenge which we all must embrace and embark on together. But as we begin to establish the criteria for measuring the game, it begins in a place which requires a deeper understanding of the game. So, that, so what they're really asking is we have to really understand the fundamentals of the game, those finer aspects. It's a case of not just looking at a pass. But looking at the nature of the pass, is it a progressive pass or is it a pass just to retain possession? It's about looking at a player's movement and seeing what tendencies are there. So it's really kind of looking deeper at what is going on in the game. But it even goes further again, as we said last week. Brentford look at players born in November, December, in the latter months of the year. Players who, when they rose through the youth academies, they could even they could be almost one year younger than some other counterparts, and because of this significant age difference, really, these players are released for being too young, not strong enough, not weak enough, not technically capable, despite the fact that they are at a disadvantage to their peers. So that is an easy metric with which recruitment can begin looking at the players who may not be getting the chances because, at a younger age especially, they're they not getting the fair opportunities because of, you know, genetics, because of the fact they are that bit younger. Another other thing to look through, and another aspect of which player recruitment can be done successfully, is looking through a player's injury history. Look at before signing them. What is the nature of the injuries? How long? How many players? How many games does he miss? How often does it occur? How can we manage this? So focus on the number of games or minutes a player has played, and seeing is bringing this player in going. To, is it a risky investment, or is it a case of is it an investment we can manage? We also must take into account as well the number of assists for example a player picks up his performances against bigger teams against smaller clubs in continental competitions the difference between goals scored at home and goals scored away there's so many finer details so many finer metrics that can really once we kind of dig beneath the surface can give us a much more detailed and comprehensive picture The one that we say, look at this guy, he's got 22 goals and 17 assists this season. But against the big teams, if you look deeper, he's struggled. Or in a continental competition, he hasn't played well. Or he doesn't really play well away from home, he only plays well at home. There's so many metrics, so many levels of detail which we can get into. That'll give us a true picture of what type of player it is we could potentially have on our hands here because while the number of passes for example in a game goals in a season distance covered these metrics really give you know really give us a kind of a standard at which we can measure and compare players they are far too broad they do not present the data in a way which truly measures the effectiveness of each of these actions and events last season was the first time i think in premier league history i can remember where there was talk of which player might win the Golden Boot because there's a couple of players tied on uh, 20, 22 goals, I think it was. And then you're kind of looking and saying, oh, well, he doesn't score penalties. And I suppose that's a really kind of interesting way of looking at it. You know, how many non-penalty goals does a player score in a season? I suppose that could be a true metric of the player's true attacking prowess. And pass-completion ratio as well. That's another great measure which, can, which can, we can see how effective a player is with their use of the ball. However, what this ratio does not account for is the number of safe passes. Passes which the player might move the ball sideways or backwards because they deem the forward pass to be too risky or they don't feel that they might be able technically capable of pulling off such a risky pass. And therefore they opt to make the safer decision and move the ball backwards. So while this player may have a high pass completion rate through the game. It might mask their unwillingness or their inability to make the riskier, more rewarding pass. So really what we're saying here is. You want to really measure you know, a player you know, who might have you know, a high progression rate in their passes. So while some players might have a high completion rate, but low progression rate, so that's in not progressing the ball forward up the pitch, it's an interesting way of looking at a player who's able to move the ball effectively. I remember the first time I really encountered this in football, and it wasn't through metrics, it was just through the old-fashioned way of using the eye. Martin Skirtle and Daniel Agar kind of were beginning to present themselves as the future of Liverpool centre-backs, kind of in the mid to late nineties. Martin Skirtle and Daniel Agger were also completely different centre-backs. Skirtle was more of an enforcer, while Agger was more of this fluid, technical centre-back. Skirtle it always seemed looks very uncomfortable on the ball in comparison to Agger. And one thing with Martin Skirtle that was very, very common and very, very easy to see, and if you go back and can access matches that Martin Skirtle played in for Liverpool, just take a look how many times has he played a ball backwards to Pepe Reina. Pepe Reina again, a goalkeeper who, you know, kind of was the first of this goalkeeper distribution machine that, you know, has changed football. Where Agger, well know Agger may have played less games because of injury, but Agger always looked forward. He always had his head up and playing with the ball. You now Agger's pass completion rate may have been below Martin Skirtle. but then again which of those two centre-backs would you rather in your team. Now, unfortunately for us as football manager players, data like this is not something we can really gleam too easily from football manager. We can't get into that level of depth. But even for our own sake, for our own thinking, for our own way of viewing football itself as a game, just watch as football returns and see, Watch the tendencies of players and what their progression rate is when using the ball. Now, money ball isn't the only approach that's changed the game of football. That analytics term, there's also many other variations. Daryl Murray revolutionized basketball with Moreyball, Ball, and that's where teams strive for only high value shots. Trees and layups, and try to avoid the low-value shots. That's something that the entire NBA has embraced. Murray Ball has taken over. It's revolutionized the sport. The Golden State Warriors now carry the torch for taking high-value shots over the low values, and perhaps in Seth Curry, they have possibly the you know most proficient three-point shooter in the game. And in football, that statistic, that aspect, that that uh, that approach hasn't changed either. Now, unlike basketball, where shots are worth and baskets, they are worth different amounts depending on where and the nature of the opportunity of the shot. In football, every shot on goal is worth one goal. Because football is a lower scoring sport, the values are obviously worth more. And expected goals is something that has, you know, changed our view of the potential of potential striking and scoring abilities of a player. Because this is one statistic that has evolved, this is one statistic which has emerged from this new era of data in football. And with Ball, it's no different. So expected goals, just for those of you unaware, for those of you who are a little bit kind of, you know, in in the dark really, but what expected goals really is, it's a way of quantifying a player's striking proficiency. Not only do you look at the quantity of shots which take place, but also the quality of them. You assess each shot and you give it a probability of ending up in the goal. And that then correlates to an expected goals value. For example, a penalty will have a 70% chance of going in, roughly. So you'll give it a 0.7 expected goals value, XG value. At the end of the game, you add up all of these values and you are left with a number of goals you could have expected each team to have scored, based on their shots or attacking opportunities. calculating of an individual player's expected goals you kind of have to look through history as well so it's a case of you know a player from outside of the box how proficient is he inside the box from the left inside the box on the right inside the box centrally there's so many ways which we can quantify um a player's proficiency in front of the goal what is the xg should be and you going back through history of that that's really the way of doing it and the the belief in data the belief in the data circles in the football community is that xg expected goals is a better determiner of performance and player ratings because what it does is it, it's one way of quantifying which a player you know has contributed effectively in a game opta stats recently added a tracking of big chances defined as a situation where a player should reasonably be expected to score usually a one-on-one scenario or from very close range. And what teams are doing is teams are encouraging their players to only take goals, so only take shots on goal if they feel you know they have the XG is there if the risk is low enough. If it's a high, like it's a case of where in basketball the value may be higher, so that's where Moriball is taking over. That you're, you're valuing high, um, high value shots. In football, that Mori ball is taking over by encouraging players to only take high XG shots. Shots which they have a greater chance of scoring than missing, based on the players' abilities and history as well. But of course, for the purists, for those spectators and, and people who really enjoy football, will the rise of data bring an end to those memorable goals? All their data and analytics and the computer calculate the chance of the shot being converted was so low that the shot should not have been taken. Because if you look at the data in football, it's not hard to go digging and find out that, you know, there has been a significant decrease in the number of shots taken in the Premier League and in the number of shots taken from outside of the box, especially in the Premier League. Because what most teams are doing is they're encouraging fewer shots to be taken from outside the box. Areas where the conversion rate is deemed to be too low and not worth the risk. So teams are encouraged to make of most of the opportunities inside the box. Like how many of those spectacular goals have we seen? I think of was a volley in the Champions League final, Hampden Park, 2002. What would have been the XG on that? And would Zidane have taken if data and analytics existed? And I think a lot of people would argue that in football, although there's data and analytics do play a role, will it remove the art form from the game? Because what we're seeing is, like we're saying, because teams are trying to take more chances from inside the box, you're looking at drills like the Rondo, taking an increased importance. Because if you have the ball in the box, chances are you're not going to be alone most of the time. So because has the quality of these drills increased the abilities of players to play with the ball so close to their feet in the box? And then of course, naturally enough, to move the ball, shift the ball about in the box, find the opportunity, and hopefully the player who gets the opportunity is the one who you'd most want with an opportunity inside the box. The player who's most proficient at putting the ball in the back of the net. Because to play the ball and find a teammate with increased awareness is the purpose of these drills. But as we're seeing now in football, it seems that teams want to be playing in closer proximity to their opponents. And try and walk the ball into the back of the net. Unfortunately XG is not really a statistic again that we can work with a football manager. It may be in FM21 we may see that rise. But of course with the data being wiped at the end of every season. Can be very very tough to understand how that can be implemented in the game when XG relies on data from the striker's previous opportunities inside the box and the player's striking history. But FM does give us a lot to work with. But we must be on the ball and think critically about the data presented to us in-game to help us build up our knowledge and then use databases, export the data that can allow us to make informed decisions. Because what this data can do is it can highlight potential transfer targets or coaching opportunities for us, which we can change the nature of our players and their squads. Red Star Belgrade signed Lorenzo Ebicillo. Okay. Why is this important? Well, the reason that's important is Lorenzo Ebachillo was not on the club's radar. Lorenzo Ebicillo played in Cyprus, and he was not a player the scouts of the club gave any sort of inclination towards what the club did was the club reached out to an analytics office which many clubs do they use an analytics office to appraise a list of players the office then will report back with a list of players with, with the list of players provided by the club and then their own suggestions as well and lorenzo ebecilio was on that list and has been a successful signing for Red Star Belgrade. FC Porto as a club have really adopted, you know, a very, very successful transfer model. Now, is this a traditional, is this a true sense of Moneyball? I don't know. It's, it's a very much of a, like a buy-low-sell-high. But then again, you know, it's football economics. They use the data, to use the analytics at the club to successfully coach the players. They find the raw talent and they use the data, to use the analytics to coach the players to refine their skills. And then the sell high value follows on as a result. Because FC Porter do have that ex- like extensive uh, network of scouts in South America who are able to find talents club acquires them for low fees and they develop them with a sell-on for a significant increased in value most of the time. And what makes Porto's model so unique is the fact that despite selling a number of key players every year, success hasn't you know disappeared. The club has continued to compete at the top of the Portuguese football and even into European competition as well. Knowing Europe's elite would pounce on their talented youngsters, Porto have made this their modus operandi. Since 2002, Porto have won 16 trophies and grossed over 400 million euros from player sales at the time of writing. And with Portugal's visa policy, the recruitment of players is much easier in comparison to countries where more stringent laws on visas or registration of non-European players exist But what they can do in some instances and what they do continue to do successfully Porto is identify talent internally or at less reputable domestic clubs as replacements for those on their first team as well. So there isn't a loss of a Portuguese identity there. But using data and analytics to coach is something that not a lot of people really consider because they just see it as a way of recruitment. And Soccernomics, the Cooper and Zimansky book, that lists many roles for clubs to follow in building a framework for moneyball. Now, Alex Stewart of TIFO Now wrote a very, very interesting piece about how he has adapted Socceromics, the Cooper and Zimansky book, to a football manager sense. It's a kind of a, a long term save. There will be a link to it down below if you want to go and read through each of the seasons, just like I did. But I'm just going kind of just trying to gleam through the the uh, the roles that clubs can use that we can use in Football Manager with uh, aspects of that soccer book. So net wage spend is more important than transfer spend. Don't needlessly splash out on new players or sell old ones when you take over a club, because that's what new manager syndrome is. Don't buy players who are impressed in international tournaments. They're likely to be overvalued, and past performance is no indication of future performance, especially when they're playing with a different team. There are different incentives and a different tactical setup at tournaments, and it's a super small sample size. Some nationalities are overrated, so like players from Holland, Brazil, and England. It's important to sell your players at the right time, when they're around 30 years old. Goalkeepers aside Use the wisdom of crowds Ask all of your scouts And a director of football If you have one Buy players in their early 20s Which avoids the problems With not developing properly And means previous statistics Have greater value Centre forwards cost more Than they should Sell any player If a club offers more than they are worth And try to replace them before they are sold. Don't buy players if you don't need to. Develop a youth network, and try to develop your own players. And the numbers game, the Anderson and Sally book, that also has similarly offered some vital tidbits of advice to implementing a soconomics approach in Football Manager. The theory that the best way to improve a team is by identifying and replacing the weakest links. Rather than splashing out and making the best links even better, a clean sheet is worth just over two goals scored in terms of points across the course of a season and If defense is more important, it stands to reason that strikers are overvalued so again, if that's if you want to you know read that more in depth for yourself, please feel free. The links will be down below. Get your notebook out. And that hopefully. We'll give you a bit more of an informed approach. The next time you load up Football Manager. But where can we all go from here? Necessity breeds innovation. And it's such the way at Brentford. Porto. Every club that uses it. So successfully as it was. With the Oakland days. Every position. Every role. Every team will give different data and use different data so it is of course important to understand the context of the situations in which data is gathered one of the issues with using stats is that everyone talks with the media and often within clubs tackles possessions, passes whatever it's really hard to understand how those metrics translate across leagues from a recruitment point of view context Players making the move from one league to another, one club to another, is a metric that has not yet been cracked. So, what you need to do is you need to establish what that is relevant to you, to your philosophy, and go about setting that up, customising your view own football manager. Analytics are not always used to be the to be used for recruitment, but coaching and development as well. Like any shrewd investor. It's what Brentford do. They buy when the stock is low. They sell when the stock is high. And use data and analytics to determine their decision making. And the nurturing of their asset. While training focuses at teams. That should be spent on where the focus is on the pitch. On the high values areas on the pitch. So for example 30% of goals come from set pieces. So 30% of goals. Sorry, 30% of focus in training. should go on set pieces. And set pieces are a great way in which goals can almost be rehearsed. It can almost be a predictive way to create your result. Because that's what we want to do. We want to create a process where results are created. Not just taking them as they come. All data is not useful. And to make it successful in FM. We need to be willing to collate this data, export it, because like I said already, the records are wiped at the end of every season, and then make informed decisions based on these numbers. The best numbers, the best advice I can give you, is to look at the statistics in the views per 90. Because if you look at per 90, it gives you an average across the 90 minutes. So i add up all these chances divided by the number of games played to give you an idea of how many you know chances how many dribbles how many shots a player takes per 90 minutes because like I said if if you're playing against a weaker team, your team should have more opportunities on the law of average than against you know a team that's of a higher reputation a more challenging team that's just the way it is, so we just have to be open to accepting that you know looking at the per 90 is the best, I believe, statistic we have available to us in Football Manager. Because at the end of the day, using analytics like this, it's just quantifying what we've always known. We've always known things we've always seen with the eye. That is just putting a number of value on what the eye sees. So just before I let you go to take up this data and analytics approach and football managers, a few little housekeeping bits and pieces I have to take care of. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not leave a positive review, share on your socials, your followers, everything like that would be greatly appreciated. Please like, review and um, it really, 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 you know, would be appreciated and help our audience to grow because getting the community involved is something I've always wanted, I always feel is important. And it's something I have, you know, put an awful lot of value in for this episode of the podcast as well. Because, you know, I asked the community, I send the polls to. Because when 71% of voters use data and analytics and 60% use the analytics, and the statistics they can gather in Football Manager to go deeper into the match analysis like FM he says. We can suddenly make a significant, you know, change, a significant development and a significant progression in how we play the game. And hopefully, you know, if I'm doing that, please, you know, continue to get involved because your voice will play a big role in that. The links are to my socials, the graphic and the technical are found down below, so please get in touch. The site is also linked down below, so again, if you want to check out my latest blog post, go there. The music for this episode has come from Pond5, so if you are looking for any music or any stock footage like that, that's the best place to go. They're not a sponsor, I just feel, you know, credit where credit's due. I like the music, if you want to get some too, that's the place to go. But as now, I let you go into another week. I wish you all the best with your football manager playing. Hope you're safe. Hope you're well. Everyone's safe and well. And if there's anything we can all do, I remember that hashtag, we're the community, really means we are a community. It's not just a way to promote your work. It has to mean something too. But until next week, thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you then. Bye now.